Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast. I'm Gregory Haddock, and I'm joined here with Matthew Podolsky. Matt, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing, Greg? I'm doing pretty well. And if you're listening to this, you're thinking, hey, this is not on your regular schedule. No, it's not. We are releasing this on an off week, a special here. And Matt, I'd like you to go ahead and just set the stage for this a little bit, as well as talk about the cooperation that you've got going on, a little bit of a partnership the partnership that you have going on with Radio Boise. What what do we what do you have for us today? Awesome. So we have an interview uh, to share with a candidate for the U.S. Senate uh, here in Idaho, Paulette Jordan. Um, this is an interview that we were able to set up uh, as a part of our partnership with Radio Boise, uh, which is the local community radio station uh, here in the Treasure Valley of Idaho, where I live. So yeah, this is a, a super exciting interview. I mean, really amazing opportunity to get to speak with uh, Paulette Jordan, um, who is running for U.S. Senate. She was a gubernatorial candidate um, in the state of Idaho in 2018, and uh, she's running again for Senate um, as a Democrat. If she was elected to the Senate, she would be the first female senator uh, to represent the state of Idaho. She would be the first female Native American to serve in the U.S. Senate ever in the history of our country. So I think just like from that perspective, it's a historic race. It's not sort of a typical Senate race, especially here in the state of Idaho. Um, Paulette Jordan is definitely running. You know, Idaho obviously is like known to be one of um, the reddest states, right? One of the most deeply Republican states. Um, but Paulette Jordan, is, even though she is running as the Democrat in this race, she's very much running a campaign. And you'll hear this in, in the interview, uh, uh, numerous instances of this. You know, she's trying to separate herself from sort of party politics and kind of uh, brand herself like as an independent, somebody who is not beholden to sort of the overall big picture message of the political party. Um, and that's sort of one of the arguments that she's making against, you know, her opponent in this race, uh, Republican incumbent Senator Jim Risch, is that he's, you know, basically just following the party line um, in, in almost every instance um, and not kind of catering his position to the unique needs of the people of Idaho. You know, we're not like making an f official endorsement of Paulette Jordan. I mean, that's not really something that we do. Um, and I mean, I think it also is important to note that because we produced this, uh, this episode and this interview, um, with, uh, with Radio Boise, the radio station has an obligation to kind of share both perspectives, right. And to give, uh, to, you know, provide that platform. So if they're providing that platform for Paulette Jordan, for the democratic candidate in the Senate race, um, then they have to be open to providing that platform for the Republican as well. So I am actually very much hoping that <laughs> that Republican Senator Jim Risch uh, reaches out and, and, and requests an interview because I would love to conduct that interview. Right. And if that sounds unusual to listeners, that's pretty much journalism 101. You have to do the best you can to represent both sides of that. That's exciting. And before we listen to the interview, can you paint a picture for us about what Ms. Jordan's primary a contest with the Democratic Party looked like, and what would you like listeners to really tune into as we listen to her talk? The primary race was relatively inconsequential. I, th I think every, at this point, every you know, uh, so Paulette Jordan at this point, like because she ran this very high profile gubernatorial race 
two years ago in 2018. Um, she is she's she's a well-known public figure now. Um, and so I think she was heavily favored to win the Democratic primary. Um, it, it was surprising, however, you know, two years ago in, in 2018, um, when she was running uh, in that primary, uh, in that gubernatorial race, right? Um, she had an, an opponent in that Democratic primary in 2018 who was heavily favored to win and who was endorsed by the Democratic Party establishment here in the state of Idaho, right? Um, so that was a huge upset. And that kind of put her on this national platform, right? Because if she had won that gubernatorial race, you know, it would have been just as historic as her winning the Senate race, right? I mean, she would have been the first female governor of the state of Idaho, first Native American governor. Her background obviously, you know, makes her a unique candidate. And, and I think that you'll hear a lot of that um, in this interview. She talks a lot about her upbringing, how she was raised. She makes very clear that her upbringing is, is rural, right? And she connects with a lot of these rural voters in the state of Idaho. But that rural upbringing is, is, is different, you know, in, in certain ways than like the stereotype that, that we associate with that. Um, and I, I think so. I don't know that I think is an interesting thing for folks to just kind of pay attention to um, as far as how she connects, you know, the like where her sort of desire to to run and to lead came from um, and how she's trying to use her her background, uh, her unique background to connect with, you know, other rural voters in Idaho. Excellent. Matthew Podolsky interviewing Paulette Jordan. Democratic candidate for the U.S. Senate in Idaho. First of all, I'd just like to I'd like to address everyone and say good afternoon to each and everyone listening. I'm Paula Jordan, and thank you for being here. I am a member of the Coraline Tribe and running to be Idaho's first female senator and the country's first Native American woman in the U.S. Senate. So it's great to be here, and thank you, Matt, for inviting me. What it was like growing up as a part of the Coraline Tribe in Northern Idaho. Um, I'm sure many folks are interested. And what are some of the common misperceptions you say that I hear? Uh, I will tell you that being born and raised here as an Idahoan and being a proud member of the Cordland tribe, I grew up on my family's farm on the land that my family has occupied for many generations. My family is an ag strong with a long history of not only cattle ranching, but cultivating the land. My grandmother being a medicine woman uh, who was uh, very strong, very closely connected to our roots uh, and all of our natural resources. Uh, we're very spiritual people. Um, and because I uh, come from this vast heritage uh, that is so beautiful and brilliant, um, being a leader of the, of the folks that I come from is truly a humble experience. And people don't seek the highest positions of power. You know, I come from a long line of chiefs and being that we don't seek these positions, I think speaks different to how we see leadership. Uh, and they actually run because they, they know uh, that they are strong enough to put the people first because they were raised that way and I was raised this way. And it's very rare, but it's often because uh, it means um, when you raise someone to understand that putting the people first, you're putting everyone else's needs uh, above your own, but it must be that you're taking care of other people, prioritizing their needs before your own. And that is, uh, that is rarely seen in politics today. But we have a senator who now has forgotten this very important principle. And I think it's uh, unique in principle uh, needs to be implemented in politics. And so I'm definitely standing on a rare set of values uh, and principles that people don't see in leadership or in politics this day. And I also see that's why they're losing faith in their government. 
But this connectivity, it's so important. And it's so important for people to understand that we're all related and how that relates to our responsibility towards one another. Um, being in a rural space like mine on the reservation or out in uh, rural North Idaho, uh, I would tell you it gives us a, a unique opportunity uh, to learn from our elders, to learn from the land, to learn from nature. Uh, and I think that's also um, culturally important because it does humble us. It keeps us honest with those around us. Uh, there's nowhere to hide. There's uh, every opportunity to grow spiritually and as a human being. These are factual concepts that I would love to see in our next generations. And this is why it's our responsibility to help them understand their true purpose here and to uh, follow through with that purpose. And that's a spiritual connection and uh, co uh, commitment that they make. But, um, I want to see everyone successful in this regard because we have a lot of work to do when it comes back to healing our country and healing our, our next seven generations so that we can continue moving forward in a powerful light that serves the greater good. You grew up in, in a rural place, right? When you think about rural landscape, you think about rural Idaho, there's like a certain idea that comes to mind. People don't think about uh, a Native American reservation when, you know, when they think about a rural community, but that's the, you know, that you grew up in a rural community, right? And, and so like, I wonder if, you know, as you've been, you know, traveling around the state and, and campaigning, what similarities have you found like with other rural communities? And if you like found that you're able to uh, connect with folks in those places, even though they're like politically very conservative? Yeah, I think that's really what strengthens our voice as rural people. You know, we are reliant on each other as neighbors and friends and we, we raise each other's children. Our successes are shared and our failures are shared. You know, our hardships are uh, shared amongst the community. And I think that's really when you're, uh, when you really learn about what it means to be part of a rural community. It's uh, just that simple understanding that we're all in, in this together. But that simple uh, aspect of understanding even the greater world is that when you're able to get it down to a very small network, you understand that even these small shifts make great impacts. So you know, every little detail counts. Um, that's what I love about local control. I feel the people that are in their communities really understand what's best for their community. And the same way why I really stand tall on uh, sovereignty, which is uh, adherent to body sovereignty, economic sovereignty, uh, being able to protect your, your lands for the, uh, for the future. And I want to make sure that people understand that these values, they aren't just adherent to the indigenous culture, they're adherent to people who are born and raised in, in rural spaces of our state and across the country. Uh, we have to work hard to earn our keep and you can't do that alone. You need a team, you need family support, you need structure. Uh, and no one wants to receive any kind of government handouts or subsidies. You know, they, wanna, they wanna stand tall and stand proud um, through their hard work and they want to be able to stand on their own and this is why you know with our tribal community we also you know we stand on these uh, these principles with economic sovereignty and that's why I'm always uh, promoting uh, strengthening our communities in such ways where we can stand on our own two feet uh, and I will certainly do that once as a senator but I think the uh, the unique values that I carry that are really uh, aligned with those in the rural sector are you know simple um, simple ways of being, you know, we walk our talk, we speak our truth, we stand on integrity. Uh, we're very, um, you know, God uh, humbled and um, we're very honorable in terms of how, you know, we want to speak to one another. I, my grandparents were very uh, big on um, their spirituality. 
they're very uh, faith-based and uh, they, they worked hard you know, for their people. They, they, I think, really set a great example for me because I, I see that when I go to rural communities and I'm able to talk about uh, the ag conditions or uh, the future of our community and uh, roles that we can all play and take on to have a strong sense of responsibility and taking action to improve our communities, uh, whether it's in big ways or small ways, all of that matters. And I, I know that with uh, those who understand where I'm coming from, being rural, uh, they know that it's above and beyond you know, being Republican or Democrat. They know that at the end of the day, it comes down to you know, what you're able to do to improve your community, improve uh, people's situations. How can you help one another and be a good neighbor? Uh, all of those are good values to have. And I think the country can learn a lot from the way rural communities operate and the, what our needs are. But it's also um, very important for me to, to share our culture, um, just the rural community's culture, because it's, uh, I think it's just imperative that you know, people understand that being a good neighbor, that there's a lot in that. It's not just being kind to one another, but it's having uh, you know, direct, honest conversations, uh, trusting one another, working together. You know, and any athlete would know this uh, because they share those similar experiences. Um, farmers have these shared experiences uh, and, and people are humbled sometimes. Uh, but I think that this is why, you know, we're against the government sub subsidies that go to billionaires and corporations that uh, don't need to be, uh, you know, given all these bailouts. And, uh, and I just don't believe in, uh, in that level of, um, you know, what I would call uh, uh, the, the corporate subsidization that is unnecessary. Taking from our paying taxpayers, our working poor to give to the rich. Um, all of that in a nutshell is, again, uh, just going back to what being a good neighbor is in the rural sector. And, you know, you mentioned the importance of local leadership. And, and, and I mean, you're stating that from experience, right? So, I mean, you have sort of multiple, you've played a, a, a few different roles uh, as sort of a local leader. Um, and, you know, I'm curious, like, specifically about, um, you know, you were elected to the tribal council for the Coeur d'Alene tribe. Um, and then you made this decision to run for the Idaho state legislature. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I don't know, I guess, I guess I'm just curious, like what that decision-making process was like, um, like what inspired you to like, uh, sort of take that next step in your political career? Well, serving on your tribal council, you take on a lot of roles and I, you know, I was covering everything from economic development to natural resources and social services work and, you know, we're, we're everywhere because we're not only defending for our children and our elders, but our land and our economy. And we're serving to protect the communities that surround us. And we're, we're very focused on healthcare and education. But having all that experience, you know, it really served me well because I was able to take that experience and that voice, um, which not is just not the rural voice, but having access to the president and having access to Congress, uh, having that national experience really helped elevate my voice and understanding to be generated at the local level to build not only uh, greater opportunities and access to prosperity, but to help other folks uh, know what really is, uh, you know, a better vision for our future. And like my elders would say, you don't know where you're going unless you know where you came from. I think that's very important for us to see that in terms of politics. If people don't know where they came from, they're certainly not going to know where they're going. And that visionary process is missing in today's country, uh, in today's world. I think that's uh, it's going to be huge when it comes down to building a vision for our future and our young people, you know, they're working to build that vision collectively. Uh, and that's just why I'm so proud to see so many folks stepping up and challenging 
the opposition on the, the climate crisis we face and you know how I'm able to help and be a leader in that uh, division. Uh, but it, my choice to run was basically uh, based off of my, the encouragement that I received from leadership and my elders. They are the ones who approached me to uh, run for this uh, local legislative seat. And I'm grateful because they seen leadership in me. They seen that I, I was a young leader who uh, you know, stands on my integrity, who I, I keep my word. Uh, and I'm able to listen to both sides of the aisle. I listen to everyone. My uh, grandfather, who was a World War II veteran, he would after uh, constantly talk to me. And uh, after some time, he would say, you know, the best thing to do is to talk with everybody. He says, don't exclude anyone. Uh, you want to make sure you talk to all the elders, to uh, those who identify as Republican, those who identify as independent or Democrat, and make sure that you're listening and giving them the time that they deserve. Because if you're asking to represent them, it's going to require uh, complete honesty and speak your truth. Don't play the politics. You don't need to you know, tell someone what they want to hear. You just need to tell them uh, what you're going to do and listen. And when you're listening to everybody, you're going to build a collective vision. But hearing everyone and their concerns, uh, that's what matters most. And then being able to address those concerns through your education and through your experience and through the lessons taught um, by our community, all of that is going to benefit the entire state, and he says, and soon the country. You ran uh, as a candidate for the state legislature in 2012 and, and lost, and then came back two years later and ran again successfully. Um, what lessons did you learn in that first race? And I mean, what, what do you think led to uh, you know, that successful campaign in, in 2014? <laughs> you know, it's always humbling to lose your first race, but it's a good learning opportunity. My, my folks, my guides would say that there's, uh, there are no mistakes. There were only experiences. And you know, I was raised to serve a broad community. And I was raised to be a humble servant um, and to be a good listener and to uh, provide vision, to be bold in my action, um, not to be apologetic and to, uh, you know, to ensure that I'm leading by example. So uh, when you tell me, talk to me about 2014, I'll tell you that you know, I simply just wanted to serve a broader constituency of Idahoans, and I could see that the indigenous style of leadership that I was raised with was lacking in politics. And I know uh, from that experience, having run in 2012, that I could do a lot of good. So I ran to represent my home district in the Idaho House. And uh, of course, despite those tough odds, I uh, unseated an incumbent Republican, and then I successfully won a second term. Um, but what I learned is that it's possible to adequately represent a Republican district with the values and principles of leadership that I possess, being largely independent and listening to my constituents, like putting the people first. I wonder what it was like showing up at the Capitol for the first time. Yes, um, it was incredible. You know, the leaders of the Republican, Republican Party took me in and offered good words of encouragement and support. Um, they respected my style of leadership and how I wasn't afraid to speak up. Many folks uh, came up to me congratulating and, of, of course, um, saying, you know, they, they don't know much about my community or background, but they appreciate the, the fact that I was very open to, you know, discussing you know, my heritage or you know, just how approachable I was. And I think that's important, but that was all by the lessons and upbringing of, of my elders. Um, when you're a leader, you're there for everybody. And I think they saw that in me and were open to uh, my words open to uh, offering their leadership in kind uh, by offering themselves up as mentors. Um, and I, I think that's remarkable because they, they, most of these folks who are Republicans, uh, they opened their doors to me and they, they took me in like family and were very kind. And I, I do appreciate that. And I look back on those times and you know, I would oftentimes look at that and think, 
you know, what would my grandfather say? Because they were all great chiefs and they, you know, they fought in these many battles, um, you know, protecting and defending their freedoms and independence against a government that was you know, tyrannizing their lands and people. And, you know, and of course, uh, history books say, tell a different story. But, you know, my own story and truth is different. And I, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that I was able to learn from that history, um, from the heritage that I have. And I would ask myself, you know, what would my grandfather think today? My granddaughter here uh, working with, uh, you know, the, the government that uh, came in and, uh, you know, and took the lives of many of our people. Uh, but I know that my grandfathers, while they stood on independence and freedom uh, and protecting our uh, way of life and protecting our sovereignty and protecting our children's future, uh, they know that, uh, and I know that they're with me spiritually, but I'm uh, grateful that they're proud. I'm grateful that they know that I'm here to continue moving our people forward in light of peace and in light of the contract that we hold with not only our future generations and uh, the spiritual element, but holding our contract with nature and this planet. I mean, it's kind of surprising to me to hear that like fellow Republican legislators were, were welcoming to you, right? Because I mean, we have this perception, I guess I have this perception, right? As, as somebody who follows Idaho politics and, and as somebody who is, you know, like considers myself to be a progressive, that the legislature is just dominated by these older white men who, you know, might not look too kindly on like a young progressive Native American woman coming into the legislature, right? So that, I don't know, that it's, it's interesting. And it's, uh, I think it's uplifting to hear that, you know, there was that, that positive response. But like, I wonder when you sort of got down to like the work of legislating, you must have encountered roadblocks. Of course, you know, and I will say that there was always that element of decorum. And I, I appreciate the professionalism of folks within and we had a great deal of uh, leadership that were uh, there my first year, and uh, unfortunately, you know, they did they they sought to not uh, run for office again. So I, I do miss them. But those who I was able to make great friends with, you know, they were very uh, professional, and respectful, and uh, so I do I still speak very kindly of them, and uh, I appreciate that they speak kindly of me too. But I will tell you that you you know pointed out all the you know some of the the issues that many people have discussed about my experience, and I. We'll say that yes, um, you know you're going to have that, but uh, you have to be bold and you can't be afraid to speak out. And absolutely, there was racism or sexism and ageism and you know, all of that. But there are ways to to address these challenges by keeping to your word and walking your talk. You're going to build relationships built on the foundation of your truth, and you're going to earn respect by showing respect to others, even in the face of adversity and discrimination. And I had it all, and it didn't dissuade me from continuing to serve my people. It didn't. Um, you know, turned me off as far as uh, wanting to stand up and challenge where I needed to, you know, stand on top of that um, uh, mantle of for truth and integrity in our government system. Oftentimes, I may have been there alone, and I, you know, and it is very a, a very lonely place. But you know, I'm not there for uh, any other reason other than to serve the people, and I think that's that's the beauty of it. You're going to have these challenges, but you have the truth with you and that's what keeps you company that and the the company of my elders my ancestors you know they they always uh, make sure to keep me straight and i i think that that is to me um the most powerful reason uh, other than the the fact that i have my two sons that i have to fight for and for their future but knowing that 
my council of elders on the other side that they're with me and counting on me to do my part here. So were you able to like work with any of these Republicans? Was there able to be any sort of collaborative effort beyond just the sort of like formalities and the decorum? There was. In fact, I think there's some uh, some good pieces of legislation that uh, I would say, you know, that not only sparked conversation, but sparked success in the end. Um, you know, one of the bills I'm most proud of is the Medicaid expansion. Um, at first, you know, uh, co-sponsoring this legislation with a Senator uh, Dan Schmidt in my uh, district, you know, it, it had a rocky start and unfortunately it did not pass its first round. And, you know, by the pressing of the people and gaining some more and more support, you know, people start seeing uh, that action that's limited within the state house. And of course they take that role on by the people and growing that base. And they took this into a grassroots element and took it statewide and were able to pass this uh, as an initiative, um, which is remarkable, you know, but this is a, a conversation that started started in the state house by legislators who decided that everyone deserves the right to have access to healthcare. And for myself and my counterpart, you know, we both actually decided, I mean, I was the first one when I found out that, you know, I was certainly not going to accept healthcare if no one else, uh, if these folks who were caught in this healthcare gap didn't have access to healthcare. I just don't feel that uh, if we're going to be leaders that we would want to, uh, you know, have access to anything that the people don't have access to. It just, uh, it just behooves me that, you know, we would have this hypocrisy uh, to not be fair to the people, the people that we actually serve. But again, this goes back into line of leadership that I come from. The, the element of being a chief is the people come first. So it's a reverse dynamic where the people are on top, the leaders on bottom. And instead, you know, we see the, the authoritarianism of today where you have the one leader on top and the people are on the bottom. But we have to reverse that structure. So uh, I'm just grateful because we did have some key leadership, uh, uh, excuse me, key bills that were passed. Um, but what I'm most proud of is my ability to build these relationships with both sides of the aisle, both in the legislature and with constituents. People did not know quite how to peg me and they still don't know to this day because what I bring to the table is a unique voice with a unique perspective. And while in office, I fought for policy changes in a number of important areas, including uh, expanded access to healthcare. I fought to uh, expand access to rural broadband and rural resource centers, clean energy, uh, expanded to, or I fought to increase teacher pay and teacher, I had a bill for a teacher loan forgiveness. I fought for criminal justice reform, including the decriminalization of marijuana or cannabis. Uh, I also fought for environmental resource protections and economic development in Idaho struggling communities. And unfortunately it was not as successful as I wish I could have been, you know, and sometimes that goes down to, you know, the, the party base that you're stemming from. Um, but I, I felt that still we were able to open some doors and create some conversations that, you know, we're able to then echo into uh, subsequent years. And uh, hopefully today, you know, we'll push that needle more to the center. I think once we push that needle to the center, people will start seeing more access, more success and opportunities. I'm curious, like, was there a specific experience that you had, like serving in the legislature that um, led to your decision to uh, run for governor? Yes. You know, I, I found out that, you know, after being in for the four years, it was, um, it was challenging. You know, you're, you're on one side and you see how the other side treats you. And, you know, unfortunately it's, it's driven to be so far to one side, there is no balance. And with that lack of balance, you're going to see 
a lot of corruption and you're going to see a lot of mismanagement. You're going to see distrust and growing distrust. And, um, you know, and unfortunately there are people on both sides who feel that way and all because, you know, we just, we have people who are too uh, strongly attached to the party rhetoric. And instead of getting the job done or working together on bipartisan efforts, they're more faithful to their party system instead of the people. And because of that, I saw the need to run. I saw the need to defend the people in their best interests. And I also see that Idaho is changing. I see that people are wanting to see more moderate leadership, uh, leadership that's willing to listen, leadership that's willing to take action uh, and not be beholden to a corporate interest, big pharma or big ag. You know, they want someone who's going to challenge you know, all of these uh, certain levels of corruption within our government system. And that's me. That's why I'm stepping up to lead. When you put your name in the hat to, to run for governor, um, like that Democratic primary, like when you won that primary, like that was very unexpected for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were definitely seen as sort of like the uh, party outsider, you know? And I mean, I remember, so like I was, I was at your um, acceptance party um, when you, <laughs> when, uh, when, when you won that primary and like, it was so interesting, right? Because like the democratic party of Idaho would like rented out this big convention center and, you know, I'm sure they were expecting that, you know, that the candidate that they supported for the primary race was going to win. Um, but you won in a landslide, right. Um, and, you know, had your party at this like small, you know, little bar in town, downtown Boise. What was that like? And, and, and I mean, did you like, did you have any sense of how far ahead you were in that primary race? No. And first of all, that night was amazing. And I'm, I'm happy you were there because that was a blast. So many of our family and friends, you know, we had a DJ with, it was live with music. We had a great turnout with the media. Uh, I'm glad they were there to cover it because it was a, you know, it was an amazing night. And I, I'm happy to see that my family and friends were there. I have folks who'd flown in to support um, we did not expect that level of a turnout, uh, but we did know that we did a lot of good work and we drove a lot of people to the polls. We we certainly worked our tail off. We we wanted to ensure that everyone was included. Uh, and that meant, you know, independents and folks who are nonpartisan or libertarians and, you know, even Republicans. We were talking to everybody and we were able to get everyone all across the risk, uh, political spectrum engaged. And I, I felt very confident that while we're engaging everyone, listening to folks all you know all across the aisle, that we were uh, getting into the communities, uh, to senior centers, to schools, to local businesses, uh, farmers. We were we were doing it all, but I just knew that with all that hard work, whatever the turnout was going to be, that I felt confident that you know we did all that we could, and you know having that confidence and just feeling satisfied with you know our outreach and what we learned, you know, I was pretty happy that night because I, I didn't feel like we left one stone unturned uh, and I didn't feel like we, we didn't give it our all. I knew that we gave it, you know, over 100%. And uh, because of that hard work, it was a nice night to have with everybody and to be able to celebrate in such a way. And so that win, you know, that was the kind of like the cherry on top. It just felt great to just relax for a minute. But um, I will tell you that while you know, that night, how incredible that was. Uh, that just meant that we had much more work to do. Uh, but it was good because we gra- we were able to grab some new folks. Uh, we had great turnouts and even the, the travel community. Uh, I know we have much more work to do in our Latino community. Uh, and we also knew that we have to start engaging more with our refugee community. People in our state who are 
uh, you know, left in the dark and aren't brought to the table. You know, so you learn a lot when you're out campaigning. You hear from these voices, you hear from the voices of our homeless people and our young people who are uh, not only losing access to prosperity, but are facing evictions and are, you know, going to our homeless centers and, you know, how, how they're feeling with their children, you know, in this process. And we were able to take the time to talk to these folks and just learn from their experiences and get a better understanding of how we can be helpful. I think all of that was important. And I knew that taking that into the general uh, would be critical because we, you know, we, we just had a different campaign back then and a different um, component, uh, but it, it certainly changed my view. And I'll say that uh, while my style of politics is common sense governing, you know, we took the best ideas from all sides, listening to the people's voice and what their needs are above all else. You know, people were talking healthcare and access to economic prosperity and preserving our environment for future generations. And you know, these are the, the top needs, their top priorities. But I would say that that's what made the platform. And it's why, you know, as an, an indigenous person, you know, I tell folks that you know, I'm nonpartisan. I'm here to be a human being first and to speak for the people uh, in their best interests and take the responsibility of representing the people of the state as a huge honor and uh, and not only the greatest responsibility but the greatest honor. Absolutely, and and you know you've you've talked a lot about sort of what made your platform uh, you know distinct in that uh, 2018 run, uh, you know quite a bit. And, you know, I think like the results I think were interesting. I mean, in that if you look at the, the percentages, they were very similar from the previous uh, governor's election. But if, when you look at the raw numbers, I mean, it, it, it looks to me like you got more votes than any Democratic gubernatorial candidate in Idaho history, mm -hmm. which is pretty remarkable. Mm -hmm. um, what were your takeaways, right? And and you're in the midst of a Senate election right now. And we started off, you know, talking about what you learned from that first uh, legislative race that you lost and how you were able to take that and turn that into a win two years later. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you feel like you're in a similar situation, right? It's two years later, um, you're in another statewide race. What are you doing to make sure that the outcome is different this time? Well, we certainly learned a lot, and that experience you know, really helps to boost you into these next levels because after you know, running that incredible race, we felt that we built something really special in 2018. And we've definitely received a boost in the Senate race because of all the grassroots progress that we made in that race. So this race has brought some very unique challenges. However, you know, the biggest adaptation of our campaign has been in response to COVID, which no one expected. You know, it really blindsided a lot of campaigns, but just people in general, you know, our entire country has been, been flipped upside down. So we're moving to an almost fully virtual campaign, uh, which has been tough. And this is in the first, you know, initial month, or I should say the initial months of this year, uh, since COVID had hit and everything had been shut down. And so as we had to adjust to move everything virtual, you know, we just launched in February. Uh, we had a great launch event uh, down in Boise and we were uh, you know, seeing a lot of great success in response to that. Uh, we had a great tour that was planned throughout the state to immediately connect with people. Uh, but yeah, it, it did shift us uh, this time around. And so our campaign is going to be, you know, in response to not only the financial crisis and the COVID crisis, but um, just the way we're, we're trying to manage within, you know, politically, because we're facing the largest or most important uh, political crossroads in our nation's history. 
but we are campaigning to be responsive to the current environment. And, you know, we're finding uh, what's, um, you know, really easiest for people to connect um, to what's most important right now. And what, which is largely COVID and the response to COVID and the economic crisis, but people are getting more involved and becoming uh, more invested in the government decision-making process and how our government functions, which is encouraging for me to see. And I'll say that uh, I'm also encouraged by the spirit of awakening that has taken over this country. Young people all over are you know, walking, uh, standing tall in the streets and fighting back for equal justice, you know, demanding change and demanding leadership uh, of integrity who will be honest and get the job done. So we can all aspire to build an America that lives up to this promise of liberty and justice for all, uh, but that's not going to change with the current leadership that we have. And as my relatives will say that it's much like the, the definition of insanity. If we keep doing the same thing over and over again, you know, nothing's going to change in the, you know, that, and that is exactly what insanity is. So we have a huge opportunity here. If we elect the right leaders with the right values, we can truly heal this country and become stronger than ever before. That is my aim. You've made some pointed attacks at your opponent, Jim Risch. You also, you know, were very aggressive in your sort of debates um, with Governor Brad Little as well. Is there something different, like in it, just thinking about like your opponent in, in each of these races? Uh, yes, I would say emphatically yes. Uh, Idaho, you know, the difference between both races is that, you know, we certainly have uh, a different opponent this time around. Um, and I will tell you that Idaho is a state where a progressive ballot initiative like Medicaid expansion uh, gets 61% of our vote. It does shift our conversation because we see that people are going to come out from both sides of the aisle and work together on an, an issue that matters most to them. And that's why we know that there's an opportunity here in this election. You know, Rich is vastly unliked. Uh, and the fact that his approval ratings as a member of Congress are at an all-time low speaks volumes. And I understand the distrust of government officials, especially career politicians who enrich themselves, like a you know sleeping on the job character such as Jim Rich. You know, I, I think he's never seen a representative like me. I've worked with both Republicans and Democrats. I worked with people young and old. I worked with businesses, the ag industry, you know, and I know it all. And I, I have actual solutions to the problems we face, the problems that he was part of creating. And I know that Idahoans are fed up with the government and trust for government officials which is also at an all-time low, much like Rich's popularity. Um, all ones, you know, they largely believe that our government is on the wrong track and that we need real change. And while I know this about our folks, I know that I also have much more to offer. You know, I'm a woman, yes, and I'm part of a new generation of leadership. Yes, I'm indigenous, but I see these all as great qualities that serve me well in this race because I am the outsider, I'm not the incumbent who's been collecting a paycheck from the taxpayers for over 44 years. I'm not the incumbent who receives most of their campaign dollars from corporate PACs or corporate CEOs in order to do their bidding. And I'm not the Senator who has done nothing to help Idahoans with his 11 years in the Senate, which is also why I'm running. Uh, but we look very closely at the numbers. You know, to me, you know, I, I work very closely with data. And I'll tell you that given the foundation that we have built in 2018, the proven Medicaid expansion pathway and the way we see a path to victory, is uh, what the DNC knows, the national media knows it, the entire nation is taking notice because leadership matters and they're giving, gaining a majority in the Senate. They know that gaining a majority in the Senate matters, uh, but the DSCC knows this. You know, all the endorsements that we're receiving, 
you know, they see that our race is gauging national attention and is a winnable seat with a vulnerable incumbent. And for the first time in a very long time, they know we have a real shot at winning the Senate seat in Idaho. So I'm extremely grateful, but I know that we got our work cut out for us, you know, over the summer uh, and that yes, a Democrat can win in Idaho. And that is exactly uh, what we're planning to do. And that's why we're going all across our state, meeting with all of our constituencies, all the organizations, making sure that again, not, not one stone is left unturned. Uh, and this is what I'm excited about. You mentioned the Medicaid expansion uh, proposition that passed with over 60% of the vote. I mean, to me, as a voter right here in Idaho, I mean, it was really exciting to see that Medicaid expansion passed, right? But it was also like deeply frustrating to like watch those gubernatorial debates and to see you strongly advocating, you know, in support of passing Medicaid expansion. And meanwhile, our current governor, you know, like, refusing to take a stance on it and yet he wins right and 60 like 60 percent of the people want this thing and yet they are still willing to vote for this candidate that obviously doesn't share that interest in 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 that issue is so frustrating right and i mean like i have family members who who live in idaho live in rural parts of idaho who are deeply conservative who I know they're voting for the Republican because they, that's what they do. They walk into the voting booth and I think like a, a lot of people are, and I mean, I'm not trying to say that like only Republicans do this. I mean, I think on both sides, right? Like a lot of people walk into that voting booth without a ton of knowledge, especially about like down ballot races in a presidential election, right? And they just vote for whoever has an R next to their name. But then when you have a ballot proposition where they actually have to read, you know, is this an idea you support? 60% of people in Idaho are like share this progressive ideal, but they don't want to vote into office any of the politicians that also support that idea. Um, so, I mean, my question for you is like, that's like a really difficult barrier to get past. And like, I wonder, it, it strikes me that that's an even more difficult barrier because of COVID-19. And so I don't know, like, I, I guess I'm just curious, like to, to dive back into like the COVID-19 campaign strategy, you know, like how do you reach people in these deeply Republican, very rural areas? Yeah, I think that's why trust, building that trust relationship with their, our constituency base is so important. You know, we take the time to listen and learn and, you know, walk in their shoes. All of that matters. And when people can build that trust with you as a, a public official or a representative, you know, that, that only grows in time. You know, as soon as I was given the opportunity to represent my district that often would vote Republican, uh, they could see that I'm, again, just a, a human being like them. I, I was not beholden to my party. I was here to listen and learn and, of course, taking the time to understand what it's like in their communities and what's important to them. And seeing that I was championing these issues, you know, in the halls of our state legislature, and you know, they they build that trust and that, uh, and they came back around the second time to support me, but even more so because they they gave me that opportunity, and I you know I definitely worked hard and uh, and trusted that response or uh, you know felt that I took care of that that role of trust. Um, so I think this is the same thing when you're you know at this level, um, you see my representative or my our current representative in Brish who. Uh, has broken that level of trust and people are not forgetful. I think they're going to remember that this guy who served his the community 
uh, even if he's not from Idaho, has still um, not represented as well. And yet we have someone who is here, who is born and raised here, uh, beholden to the land, beholden to the people, uh, loves our land and loves our people, will certainly represent and champion our issues, whether they're from the agricultural community, whether they're from the, the forest industry, or whether they're from uh, the conservation community. Uh, these folks understand that I'm here to ensure that there's balance and I'm going to not only listen, but work with them directly and not hide from them while I'm in DC. You know, they know that I'm going to come home uh, and speak the truth and be bold in my actions, but also uh, make sure to uphold that level of integrity and my oath to the constitution. I think all of these, uh, these points that I'm making, uh, while I don't see this in my opposition, uh, I think it's important for people to understand that even uh, for me, while I'm a registered Democrat, I act in a nonpartisan fashion. You know, I am an indigenous woman and I stem from an, an indigenous community that is very nonpartisan. And that is how I have established my reputation on the Capitol Hill, working with both sides of the aisle and having seen tremendous success. And I will continue to see such success because people trust that I'm not here to promote any party. I'm here to promote the voice of the people and to see uh, everyone on both sides uh, have not only access to some level of success, but my, wanting to make sure that we we uh, push the these bills forward, that we're not in this lockstep like we're seeing now. You know, this is how I see us really bringing our country back together, but we have to be above our party to do that. And I am certainly willing, I, am, I will go there once I'm elected Senator. Idaho is like known to be independently minded and like not necessarily the same, you know, like not necessarily following lockstep, like with the Republican party, even though it is, you know, well known as a very conservative state, you know? And I mean, I think like, well, like one of the examples of that, like one of the issue-based examples of that, I think is the public lands issue, right? Where it's like, if, you know, if you're a Republican in Texas, you know, it's pretty much guaranteed that you're in support of privatizing public lands. But, and, and I mean, that's something that you've talked about on, on, you know, on the campaign trail quite a bit. And mm -hmm. I think that one of the things that gets, often gets lost in these discussions about public lands is how they became public in the first place. Mm, yeah. And exploring that history, you know, and as somebody who is indigenous, you know, I, I guess I just wonder what your thoughts are on, on, on that issue, right? And how you deal with uh, like crafting a message surrounding the public lands issue, um, given that troubling history. Well, and that's a really good point. You know, the history of this nation has been largely suppressed and because we don't like to look at it, we don't know how to really make it right. I think there's still a lot of that looming guilt, but we must understand that our truth and how we got here, um, you know, between all of us, you know, before we can move forward, um, this truth must be addressed so that we don't repeat our same mistakes. And we need to create space for these indigenous voices in the government at the same time, uh, which is why, you know, folks like uh, Congresswoman Deborah Holland and uh, Sharice Davids out of Kansas, you know, they're equally fighting to be representatives of the indigenous community. And myself in the Senate, you know, I think that starts to uh, crack open the door so we can start to see balance in our government today. But I wanna talk about really how I differ from my opponent on public lands, um, which is vast, you know, and it's, it's unfortunate that it is this way and we've come down to this, but when it comes to public lands, the base that Senator Rich plays to wants to sell off precious public lands that we Idahoans hold as sacred. You know, and I, I come from a, a people that uh, came here, not only with our contract to the mother earth, but upholding that land and nature and its resources, including wildlife, is very sacred to our people. 
But Jim Frisch, you know, he is once again sleeping on the job while leading politicians of the West, both Democrat and Republican, uh, that were willing to speak out and make sure that this administration knew how deeply unqualified William Penley is to oversee public lands and the BLM. Uh, right now, Rich should be doing everything in his power to make sure that William Penley, who is an avowed enemy to public lands, who's built a career around privatization, is removed from the, the Bureau of Land Management or steps down. But he won't because he is one of the most anti-conservation, anti-public lands members of Congress. Even the League of Conservation Voters rated Rich at a mere 7%. And he recently voted against the Great American Outdoors Act, which is the most consequential conservation legislation of his career. And this would fully fund the land and water conservation fund and benefits every single county in Idaho and our economy. So Rich's no vote on the Great American Outdoors Act shows how out of touch he is with Idaho's needs and Idaho's people. And Idaho has more than half a billion dollars worth of deferred maintenance in its national parks and forests. Yet the Great American Outdoors Act will help our federal land management agencies to not only address the, the maintenance backlogs on Idaho's federal public lands, and you would know this, Matthew. I mean, you and I, I know that you're an outdoors man. Uh, you know, I like to spend time on, in the outdoors with my family, um, especially when it comes to you know, our local state parks, or of course, the, you know, we've been out to um, you know, Yellowstone, Last summer, you know, it's just beautiful, but protecting these lands is imperative. And of course, keeping public land access uh, is imperative and uh, not selling it off. You know, that, that is at the heart of a lot of people's concerns. But if we uh, address these maintenance costs, it will certainly direct the impact or directly impact the econo economic activity driven by Idaho's public lands and in gateway communities. So, you know, I, I'd say that I, I believe in keeping public lands in public hands. Uh, conservation policy is a defining issue in the U.S. Senate race like ours. People need to know who Rich is before they vote for him just because he says he's a Republican. We need leaders who will respect our land and the legacy it is to future generations. Uh, we do not want and do not respect the short-sightedness of elected officials who enable the privatization of public lands. We need a senator who is a willing and not only able, but willing to build coalitions between federal, state, local, and tribal governments in order to share best practices and inefficiently and efficiently manage public lands through dedicated partnership. And all of this is going to be critical. And because I've worked on all levels, I understand that this relationship must be strengthened for us to move forward uh, because uh, having these shared uh, responsibilities is going to be important when we talk about land management uh, going into the future with the climate crisis that we face. So as Senator, I will make sure that we not only renew conversations on a number of important areas, including designating the Scotchman Peak Wilderness Area, but protection of this area will be one of my priorities after being sworn in. You know, Rish introduced a bill to protect this area and then pulled the bill after a primary advisory vote last year. He showed no leadership. The fact that he lacks leadership on so many of these issues, even going so far as to hold up a spending bill uh, because he's angry over naming uh, the White Cloud Wilderness after his former rival Cecil Andrews Memorial. How ridiculous is that? And the pettiness uh, you know, of this man, uh, I think is just far and beyond what I think anyone could recognize. But you know, access to our public lands, bottom line, is a huge concern and one that I will work to address as Senator in tandem with the permanent funding of the Land and Water Conservation Fund. 
Absolutely. And I mean, these are like, these are bipartisan issues or, I mean, you know, largely bipartisan issues. It seems to me at least like he's clearly on the wrong side of a lot of these issues, even within the perspective of the Republican party. So I'll just close out by asking you how listeners can learn more about your Senate campaign and show their support. I want to thank you so much for your time and uh, thank you all who are listening for your support. If you haven't gotten involved yet or signed up for our campaign updates, I want to ask you to get involved now at politforsenate.com and continue to support our campaign to ensure that the U.S. Senate will be representative of the voice of the people of Idaho. So I want to thank you for your coverage of our United States Senate race. I want people to understand that living in this crisis and recovery is what matters in our leadership. And this is the most important election of our lifetime. And I want to encourage everyone to vote, to openly ask other friends and family, what is your voting plan during the pandemic? And request your ballots now at idahovotes.gov and return your mail-in ballots early or make a plan to vote in person at the polls in responsible and a socially distanced way. Thank you. All right, Greg. So tell me, what's what's your plan to vote in this upcoming election? Libertarian. Tea Party. All the way down. I'm voting for Donald Trump Jr. No, I don't mean who. I mean, like, have you requested an absentee ballot? Like, or do you have a plan to vote? You know what I mean? That kind of stuff. Yes. Yes. Well, you know, I tell everybody all the time how important it is to vote. So if I, if I didn't, you know, I would really be going against my, my inner, inner core humanity crying out for me to do something about how messed up the world is. Uh, participate in any way you can. And I think a big part of that, too, is getting getting a chance to go over the ballot ahead of time. I think young people make that mistake a lot. And I think a lot of uneducated voters make that mistake a lot. And just tribalism of party mentality, they make that mistake a lot. Right. And let's, I mean, like, let, let's be honest here. Like, I've done that. Right. You, you, you show up at you. Yeah, you show up, uh, you know, you show up to vote and you've got a bunch of information, especially during a year when there's a presidential election and you feel like you know a lot about those candidates at the top of the ballot. And then you get down to some of these more local races. And I mean, almost every time that I uh, vote, I feel like I, I feel that to some degree. Right. Of like, oh, man, like. Who are these two candidates, you know, for whatever race it is, whatever, you know, seemingly inconsequential local race. Uh, But in reality, you know, those local races potentially have, uh, you know, a greater likelihood to impact your life. I mean, I don't don't know if you could say that in this particular election. Um, I think the the presidential race is, is very consequential in this particular year. And I and I, honestly, I'm, I'm still not sure who I'm going to vote for in the presidential race. I've not decided for myself yet. Um, but I'm very interested in, in the campaign of uh, Mark Charles, who is running as an independent. He's a, a Native American Navajo candidate. I, I, I've, just, I've been following his campaign, you know, since, since the spring. And if I was going to vote my conscience, then like that's probably who I would vote for. I think what Matt and I are trying to say is no matter what you do, no matter what your ideology is or your beliefs. And yes, there are wrong beliefs. Just kidding, but seriously, go and vote. Go vote.
The Eyes on Conservation podcast is a production of the Wildlands Collective. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky, along with our co-host, Gregory Haddock. Music in today's episode is by The Great Turtle.